replies and says, well, how in the world can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And so Jesus gives a second illustration to to speak about salvation. The first was being born again. The second, he says, is it's the wind. And uh, perhaps even the wind blew as they're having this conversation at night. The wind blows where it wishes. And you you hear the sound of it in verse 8. But you don't know, you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says salvation, entering the kingdom of God, is like, it's like these two things. Number one, first, you must be born again. Here's an earthly illustration to show you what it means to come into the kingdom of God or how one comes into the kingdom of God. It's a, a spiritual birth, regeneration. Secondly, the way this happens, it's the way of the working of the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind that blows. You, you can't control the wind. Well, neither can you control the Spirit. In fact, this passage, as we continue to walk through it in chapter 3 this morning from verses 11 through 21, really really the, 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 the big thing that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about is he's continuing to speak about eternal life. What it means to have eternal life. Perhaps that's a great question for us to ask today in our culture that we live in. What does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean... When we die, or what, what happens after we pass from this earth, where do we go? What's the next step? And we would say, well, it would be to spend life and eternity with Christ. But it's a question that many today in our culture don't ask or don't consider for eternity. How does one enter into the kingdom of God? Many people have their views and their thoughts on the subject matter, but Scripture is clear. Scripture affirms. Jesus himself tells us, here's how. Born again. Be born again. You must be born again. And so as we cover the second half of this passage this morning, this passage contains one of the, probably the greatest, at least in Protestant tradition, the greatest uh, passage that's been memorized uh, for many. John 3.16, we could probably all stand and quote. Most of us could probably stand and quote. I won't ask you to do it this morning. I don't want to make anybody feel left out if they haven't memorized it. And it's okay if you haven't memorized John 3.16. But it is a common verse that many have memorized today. But in this passage, we encounter really a biblical tension regarding the mystery of our faith. And it's this, namely, that in coming to Christ, there's a mysterious working and freedom of the Holy Spirit by which we are converted to God. So that verse 8 reads, as we said a moment ago, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the earthly illustrations that Jesus uses teaches us the freedom of the Holy Spirit in the process of, of regeneration in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit acts upon the believer for his or her regeneration and conversion to the salvation of God. And just as man does not exercise his will in the physical conception or birth process, what Jesus is saying is neither is he exercising his will in the spiritual process of regeneration. In fact, verse 6 of chapter 3 speaks to this, saying that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. But coupled with these verses, we 
come to verses 15 and 16 in the same conversation. And Jesus speaks in verses 15 and 16 and says of the one who looks to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, whoever sees him, whoever believes, he will be saved. He will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so we, we understand the man's, that man's responsibility at this point as well, that if, if a man rejects the testimony of Christ, he's responsible and in fact has already been judged. We'll see in a few minutes in verses 17 and 18. But as we proceed to verse 11, we see that Nicodemus is one who is earnestly devoted to following God. He has devoted his life to religion so that he might earn his way into the kingdom of God. But the words of Jesus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. They've cut across the grain of his life. They've cut across the grain of his devotion and they've left him perplexed. And he asks the question in verse nine, how can this be? He doesn't understand how in the world can this be? And so I want to share with us three truths from this passage about the gospel that I think are evident in this passage. And the first one is this. Believing the gospel requires spiritual illumination in verses 11 through 13. Believing the gospel requires spiritual illumination. I think what we see in the life of Nicodemus here is we see a spiritual blindness. He can't comprehend the things of God, the things of Christ that that Jesus is telling him. He's he's spiritually blind. And so Jesus really focuses in on Nicodemus's unbelief and says, but in verse 11, you, you do not accept our testimony. What's interesting here is when he says you do not accept our testimony to Nicodemus, he's not just speaking about Nicodemus. In fact, that you there, that pronoun is a second person plural pronoun. So it means multiple people, not just one singular person. It's like we would say y'all, right? We don't have a you plural. That, that's our you plural, y'all. So it would read like this in verse 11. And y'all do not accept our testimony, Right? Who, who would that be? It's those who whom Nicodemus represents. He comes to Jesus in verses one, two and three of of chapter three. And he says, we know that you are a teacher that have come from God because no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus represents those religious leaders. He represents those who are attracted to the signs of Christ, but not necessarily wanting to commit their life to him. The things that Christ does, the benefits of of being part of the kingdom of God or being part of God's people. Yeah, those things are things we want. But when it comes to to surrendering our life and committing our life to him and, and following him and walking the straight and narrow, we don't want any part of that. That's who he's speaking to. In other words, Nicodemus's religious life is characterized by a spiritual blindness. And so Jesus says to him, we we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. Of course, Jesus uses the plural pronoun there as well. We. Speaking of that which has come through John the Baptist, the testimony that we've already seen in John chapter one 
beginning in verse 19 through through 29, this testimony of of John the Baptist, the testimony of Christ that he himself gives, the the testimony that the disciples give, these testimonies have been clearly spoken. The signs that Christ has done, they've been clearly seen. But these have not been clearly understood or are accepted by many, especially those such as Nicodemus. And so that testimony of John in chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem asking him, who are you? He said, I am not the Christ. Don't make a mistake here. It's not me. I'm not the Christ. And then he goes on all the way through verse 25. They ask him, if you're not the Christ, why are you baptizing? And then later in verse 29, he makes the declaration. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 36, he says again, behold, the Lamb of God. Here is the testimony of John pointing to the person of Christ, but others aren't willing to see. In verse 41, we have the disciples testifying and giving testimony. Andrew himself, he he meets Jesus after John has pointed him to, to Jesus. And then what's the first thing that Andrew does? He goes and tells his brother Simon about Jesus. And he brings this testimony to Simon. And Simon comes and as one of the disciples, he becomes Peter and he believes. Philip does the same thing in verse 45. He goes and he, he finds Nathaniel, his brother, and he tells him, he testifies of, of this one Jesus. And he comes and he believes. In verse 51 of chapter 1, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And of course, Christ is speaking, foreshadowing of his death, his crucifixion on the cross, and in him being the way upon which man can ascend to heaven. It's through him. There's the sign that's already been done, and then many more that have come. He says in this passage, as Nicodemus has affirmed in chapter 3, verse 2, but this sign that Jesus did and the miracle of turning water into wine in Cana at the wedding feast, pointing to the fact that Jesus himself is the best that is better than anything this world has to offer, that true satisfaction and true sustenance can be found in him, and it points to his glory. Well, these, among many others, are signs that have already been pointing, and they are testimonies that have already been pointing for others to see who Jesus is, that he is the promised Messiah. But Nicodemus wasn't believing in Jesus. He was awed by the signs that Jesus had done, but he'd not experienced that transformation that Ezekiel had prophesied about in Ezekiel 36 and, and Ezekiel 37. And with all of his studying of the scriptures and everything he has learned, get this. Nicodemus still couldn't accept the testimony of the witnesses that were calling out to him. With all of his knowledge of Old Testament scripture and prophecy, he still missed it. The reason Nicodemus is in need of Holy Spirit illumination. He needs to have the new birth the one that Jesus has been telling about in verse 3, and he needs the experience of, of, of the working of the Spirit that, that Jesus has been speaking about in verse 8. He needs to encounter the Holy Spirit in his life. I 
think we can approach the application here from so many different facets, both as believers and having lived lives that we are quenching the Spirit and we are not daily in contact, walking with the Spirit, hearing from God and knowing His direction and will in our life because we are maybe dabbling in sin and, and not wanting to surrender and we're just we're enjoying this, uh, this place that we're living in. And maybe there are some here this morning who, who are in a similar place spiritually as Nicodemus. You've grown up in church, maybe. You've gone through all of the, uh, the, the different training that, that the church offers. You've been to VBS and Sunday school. You've, maybe you've even been on the receiving end of a, a parent-child dedication, and you've grown up from that age in church, but there's not been any real life and vitality to your walk with Christ. I want to challenge you this morning that if you're in the same place that Nicodemus was, that you beg out, beg of God, that by his Holy Spirit, he would he would awaken you and and cause you to see him and to see your sin in light of who he is. Nicodemus was in need of Holy Spirit illumination. Maybe there's some here this morning. I would be fairly certain that there are some here this morning who are in need of Holy Spirit illumination in our lives, that we just, no matter how much learning we've had, no matter how much uh, devotion we've had, that we need the Holy Spirit to awaken us and to illumine us to understand God's Word. Jesus goes on in verse 12 in this conversation to speak to this end and say, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, how could could I tell you, Nicodemus, and the unregenerate, unbelieving Jews that are following, of any of the profound heavenly truths about the kingdom of God when they couldn't understand the earthly truths about the kingdom of God that he had just shared? And so what are those earthly truths? must be born again, the the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer and the way that the Spirit works as as the wind moves, so is the way of the working of the Spirit. The heavenly truths that he's speaking about here would be those that have already been evidenced in John, the relationship between the Father and the Son. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Or later in John 17.5 in the the prayer that Jesus is offering on behalf of his disciples before the Father, when he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. Or the incarnation, that's a, that's a heavenly mystery of our faith or of, of our salvation, the incarnation that Christ himself in John 1.14 would step down and the word would become flesh and make his dwelling among us. Or Paul later in the book of 1 Timothy speaks of the mysterious gospel in 1 Timothy 3.16 when he says this by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Or maybe his eternal plan of redemption, Ephesians 1.4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. This is the work of Christ choosing us in him, or the work of God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world even. 
Second Timothy 1 9 that who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And even though Nicodemus is a highly skilled and and learned man in religion, he isn't able to understand these truths. If there was a man that could have connected the dots, here's one. But given the opportunity, he couldn't. And so we must see that it, it isn't that we simply lack the natural mental ability to understand and to believe in the gospel, for we do. But we are corrupt and blinded by our sinful nature. And unless our eyes are opened and we're delivered, we will not believe. We're in need of divine revelation. As 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Paul says, But a, a natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit for are the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You see, we need to be able to have the Holy Spirit in order to understand the mysteries of salvation. And even then, there are things that we certainly just cannot comprehend, like this tension between the election of God and the the calling of God for us to walk with Him and the believing of the believer, this relationship between the calling of God and us believing in Him and walking by faith. And so we see that Believing the gospel requires spiritual illumination. Nicodemus had spiritual blindness in his life. But then there's a need for divine revelation. And the news, the good news of verse 13 is Jesus is saying the divine revelation has come. In verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And what Jesus is saying here, he's describing a a round trip where he's descended from heaven to earth and then back to heaven and foreshadowing the cross and foreshadowing his resurrection and ascension. But more so, he's telling Nicodemus that the one who can grant this heavenly understanding of the kingdom of God is the one who has come down from heaven to earth. And it is him, the son of man, like he's already said in verse 18 of chapter one. That is that Jesus himself is the one who can exegete or reveal the father to us. And the reason is because he's the only begotten of the father. He is the unique one, the only one like him. He is uniquely qualified and he is the unique son of God who has entered into our humanity and made it possible for us to become born again. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the mystery of God's salvation in Christ, that he would provide salvation through his son. F.F. Bruce says this divine wisdom belongs to the son of man. He's not had to go up to heaven to acquire it, but he's come down from heaven to impart it. And for Nicodemus. And for all those who would trust in Christ. And Jesus' teaching, the new birth belongs to the elementary stage. There's much more to be learned after this first lesson is grasped, he says. But how can anyone who fails to appreciate this go on to understand the fullness of God's revelation in Christ? 
And so what F.F. Bruce is saying here is that this divine wisdom has come from God. The Son of Man has brought it to us. And that what he's speaking to Nicodemus about is the most elementary and foundational thing of entering the kingdom of God, of salvation. There's much more that must be learned and grasped after being born again. And I would say to us, church, we must realize that our believing in the gospel is not because we're smart enough and and we figured it out, nor is it because we've worked hard enough, nor is it because we are good enough, but because God opened our eyes to sin and to see our sin and to see our need for salvation. And he, by his Holy Spirit, has moved in our lives like the wind and has granted us new birth. The question I would ask this morning for us to consider is, have we believed the testimony of Jesus? Have we believed the testimony of the disciples of of God's word, the truth of God's word? Second point we see this morning, not only is believing the gospel, not only is believing the gospel require spiritual illumination, but we see that the gospel is the only hope for eternal salvation. The gospel is the only hope for eternal salvation. In verses uh, 14 through 18, we see first we see the gospel illustrated. Look at what he says. Another illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, Jesus is referencing or quoting from Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. So I want to read Numbers 21. Five through nine for you. If you want to turn there, you can. The people of Israel are complaining about what they have to eat as they wander in the wilderness. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who's bitten when he looks at it, he'll live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, why in the world would Jesus pull this story out of numbers and bring it here and make application? Well, I think because Jesus is trying to make a specific parallel account and understanding of what he does in delivering his people from sin. Jesus refers to a horrifying account here. I say horrifying because I just reveal maybe my hand and my colors this morning. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. And so if if you put me in the same room with a snake, I'm going to hurt myself if the snake doesn't. I just I I don't like snakes. There's not a gun big enough to take care of them. I mean it. Um, but I, I won't kill a non-poisonous snake, just to let you know. But this is really a, a horrifying scene. It's a terrible scene. And so, as 
as the children of Israel are walking, um, the venomous serpents have invaded the camp of the people. The snakes were biting and, and infecting the people with their deadly venom. But as the people were dying, they came and they approached Moses and Moses interceded to God on their behalf. And he makes a serpent like the one that infected them with the deadly venom. And Moses lifts it up on a staff. And for any who were bitten, if they looked at the lifted serpent, they would be healed. Because they, here's what happened when they lift, looked at the lifted serpent. They acknowledged their guilt and they expressed faith in God's healing power when they would look up. And Jesus says, in the same manner the serpent was lifted, so must the Son of Man be lifted. Just as the serpent's venomous bite infected the people of Israel, so sin has bitten every person and infected God's creation with a death sentence. And Jesus is the one who has taken our sin upon himself and suffered the death sentence that we deserve, becoming our substitute. He became the substitute in our place. He has been lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And this is what he's saying. As you look at the Son of Man who has been lifted up, those who look at him will have eternal life. And Jesus is illustrating for us that just as the children of Israel only had one hope for living once they were infected with the deadly venom, there was only one way that they could live. There was only one way that they could be healed once they had been struck and bitten. Jesus is saying, so is everyone who's infected with sin. There's only one way that we can be healed. There's only one way that we can be delivered from the deadly effects of sin. And he says, it's by looking at me when I'm lifted up. And it's by believing in me when I am lifted up. Jesus himself became the substitute for sinners when you think about it, this is a terrifying situation if one doesn't have the hope of Christ, is it not? The death sentence by a fiery serpent. Serpent, Sin has delivered a death blow to our mortal bodies. And unless we know Christ and believe upon him and see the Son of Man lifted up, unless we believe on him, we have no hope of eternal life with Christ. So he illustrates the gospel and then he explains the gospel. He explains the gospel in verses 16 through 18. And so we come to that passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Listen, there are sermons upon sermons that have been written on this verse And really, this verse sends us on a journey opening up the unfathomable depth and riches of the love of God. And I don't think that we can really begin to plummet the depth of the love of God or truly comprehend the depth of the love of God this side of heaven because it's an incalculable cost for our salvation. We cannot begin to know the depth of the cost of God sending Christ Karl Barth, a philosopher and theologian, was once asked, what is the greatest thought you've ever had? 
And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God has been displayed through the character of God and through the gift of God in him sending Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we see the character of God displayed through his action and out of his love for, get this, out of his love for the world, he gave his only son. God's love goes to the point of giving that which is most precious. Just think for a minute, his only son, the unique one. There is no other one like him. Each of the parents that stood up here this morning, they know the preciousness and the value of their, the child's life. Each parent in here knows the precious value of a child's life. We know this. And what God does is He gives His unique, His His only Son on behalf of the world in order to save the world. Out of His great love, out of His compassion and the character of God, out of His love, He gives us His only Son that we might have salvation for all who believe in Him. God did this because there was only one who could fill the messianic mission that God had for Christ to fill. There was only one who could redeem humanity. There's only one who is able to save us. And it was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God himself stepping down in flesh to save the world. The world being sinful man, you and I. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. There was a boy who held a a little boat and said, it's mine. I made it. This little boy suffered a keen disappointment one day. One day with exuberant anticipation, he carried the boat to the shore of a lake and he, he sailed it on the clear blue water. The little boat skimmed along the gentle breeze and as it blew its sails, it, it, it sailed across the rippling waves. Then suddenly a gust of wind caught the little boat and snapped the string that the boy was holding. And out farther and farther the little boat sailed until at last it vanished from his sight. And sadly the boy was, he made his way home and without his prized possession, it was lost. He, he wouldn't, wouldn't be able to find it. The weeks and months went by. Then one day, the boy passed a toy shop, and something, something caught his eye. Could it be? Was it really? He, he looked closer, and it was. Yes, it was there in the display of the window, his own little boat. Overjoyed, the, the boy bolted into the store and told the owner about the boat on display. It really belonged to him. He had made it. I'm sorry, the shopkeeper said, but it's my boat now. If, if you want it, you'll have to pay the price for it. Sad at heart, the boy had left the store, but he was determined to get his boat back. And even though it meant working and saving until he had enough money to pay for it, at last the day came, clutching his money in his fist, he he walked into the shop and spread his hard-earned money on the countertop. I've come back to buy my boat, the boy said. The clerk counted the money. It was enough. Reaching into the showcase, the storekeeper took the boat out and handed it to the eager boy. And the boy's face lit up with a smile of satisfaction, and he 
He held the little boat in his arms and he said, you're mine. Twice mine. Mine because I made you and now mine because I bought you. And this is exactly what Christ has done. He has made us. And we're his. And we're his because he made us. And then we're his because he bought us. He has redeemed you. From the sentence of death. From the venomous serpent. From that which has issued forth death. And the only way for us to be delivered from it is to see Jesus Christ. The one who has bought us with his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, I I can't explain any better than the great minds that have tried the mystery that's inherent in salvation. And so we must keep the biblical tension here, understanding that God works by his spirit in the life of a person whom he's drawing. And at the same time, God. God calls us and we come and we see him and we are responsible for rejecting if we reject and choose not to follow him. And so he says, all who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this belief that he's talking about, it is when we come to him and we place our faith and our trust in him, we entrust ourselves to him it's an action word it calls for a transformation of one's life it ushers in a transformation where where we are changed no longer like we once were it means that we confess jesus as lord and live in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ the love of god it reaches to the depths It reaches far and wide to grip our lives and invites us to come and to be born again. And we come and we look and we believe upon Jesus Christ, the one who has given his life for us. And then we are born again as we come and we believe upon him. The love of God reaches to the lowest depths and he finds us where we are, maybe dejected and despairing even of life itself. The love of God carries us across the mountaintops of our existence and and teaches us how to live for his glory. The love of God meets us in our everyday lives with grace and mercy. The love of God meets us in our everyday lives with compassion in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering, in hurts and in joys and triumphs and in mistakes. The love of God meets us in temptation. When we fall, he picks us up. When we stumble, he lavishes his grace upon us and when we're stuck in our sin and we we can't see a way out his love meets us where we are we look to him we look to the cross and we see the one that was hung there for our redemption and we believe we say praise the lord praise god for what you have done in saving us Praise God for the hope, the only hope of our eternal salvation. 
Jesus illustrates the gospel with the serpent and then saying he himself must be lifted up. He explains the gospel by the love of God and the character of God that he loved and he gave his only son and he applies the gospel in verses 17 and 18. And that is, he says the purpose of Christ's coming was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 18, this shows us that we either believe in Christ or we reject Christ. And the consequence for rejection is that there is a judgment. In fact, he has already been judged, the one that rejects Christ. But the one that believes, he will have eternal life. And the one that we believe on is the only begotten Son of God. For God didn't send the world, Son into the world, not at this point, to judge, but in order to save the world, that the world might be saved through him, that those who would believe in him might be saved through him. And so the condition of this gift that God has given us in the person of Christ is that we believe, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that our lives are lived in accordance with what we say we believe. And so Christian, I want to challenge us this morning as we see the gospel illustrated and explained and, and applied to our own lives, that we would walk in a way where we, uh, we, we believe and we, we live our faith and our, our lives match one another as we live for the glory of God. Finally, this morning, I want us to see that the gospel shines light into the darkness of the world. The gospel shines light into the darkness of the world. In verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. You know, verse 19, this is this is true. Under the guise of darkness, many evil things occur. And they do so because no one is able to see what happens under the darkness of night. And it's for this reason that we see Jesus coming into the world as the light shining into the darkness. And notice what he says for the believer, for the child of God. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be manifested as having been wrought in God, having been birthed in God. The one who rejects Christ hates the light doesn't want to come to the light, but the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes to the light. And the light of Christ shines on his life, on her life, and reveals those things in life. And sometimes this can be a painful process as the light of Christ shines on our life and reveals things in our life that we know we would like to keep hidden in the dark places. But as a believer in Christ, as one who has the Spirit of God dwelling in you, as one who has believed upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we cannot continue to walk in sin and have a joy-filled life 
our lives will be miserable if we are walking in known sin and refusing to repent and come into the light of Christ. God didn't create us and call us as believers to walk in darkness. He has called us to walk in the light. And so the gospel light shines into the darkness, and that's part of your life and in my life, that we, being the light of Christ reflected into the world, we, our lives, our lives shine into the midst of the darkness and reveal the light of Christ into the other others' lives. But also there is this internal working of the Spirit in our life where the light shines in our own lives and reveals areas in our own hearts or in our own way that need to be surrendered and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to evaluate your heart, evaluate your life before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's something in your life that needs to be confessed before the Lord, I want to challenge you to confess that before him. If there's a if there's an area in your life where the light is shining and it hurts, it's because that that thing needs to be repented of and and left alone so that you might walk in the joy of Christ. And so this morning, Jesus teaches us that believing in the gospel requires spiritual illumination. The gospel is the only hope for eternal salvation. And when Christ comes in, it's the light of Christ that shines in the midst of the darkness. And believers ought to be found doing those things which have been birthed and wrought in God and prompted by the Spirit of God. I want to close in this way this morning by challenging us. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've sensed that the Lord is calling you to be born again, to be born anew, you can do that right where you're sitting. You can surrender your life to Christ and say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, satisfying the wrath of God, being the substitute in my place on the cross. Or maybe this morning as a believer, you've not been walking in the light of Christ as you know that you should be. And there's some things in your life that you just need to confess before the Lord. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. And understand this, if we're going to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and understand his way, we must walk by his spirit. We must be led by his spirit, spiritual illumination, illuminated by the spirit of God in our lives. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you give us. I pray, Lord, that as we worship you today, that our lives would be pleasing in your sight. And God, that you would strengthen us to follow you more closely, to live for you more fully, to come to the light more readily, so that we purify our, you purify our lives and that we will walk with you and enjoy the fellowship of knowing you and the joy that comes from walking with you. And Lord, this morning we thank you for the opportunity to meet here and to worship you, and we praise your name, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?
new hymn to teach you this morning called Arise My Soul Arise. Thank you. 